0: Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. morning. So I heard a story the other day of a man and his ever nagging wife. And they had been married for about 50 years and decided that for their wedding anniversary, they were going to take the trip of a lifetime. They were going to go visit the Holy Land. During the trip, however, the man's wife suddenly fell ill, and she died. Well, the man visited a local funeral company in Jerusalem to make the necessary arrangements. And they told him it would cost $45,000 to ship her home, but just $500 to have her buried in the Holy Land. Well, the husband immediately replied, "'Ship her home.' Shocked, the undertaker asked again, "'No, no, note, ship her home,' he said. "'But sir, why don't you bury her in the Holy Land?' And perhaps save all that money. And the husband replied, Well, I heard a story that a long time ago, a man was buried here. And three days later, he rose from the dead. I just can't take any chances. This will go down as a sermon series of bad jokes. I know. It's one of my favorites, though. Not because I have a nagging wife. Well, we're spending a couple of months looking at what it is that Christians believe. And this week, we've come to the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason we're looking at what we believe is because what we believe really matters. And what we believe about God matters most of all. And the way we're doing this, as we've seen each week, is we're taking a piece of the Nicene Creed. And we're taking it and looking at what it says. And these are the words that we say each week after our sermon in week one, we looked at why we believe there's a God, the very first part of the creed and what he's like, and we saw that Christians have good reasons to believe that there's a God who loves us, and he made us in his image, and he's noble, and he's all-powerful. In fact, he orders and controls and brings life to the universe, and with it, he brings genuine purpose and meaning. In week two, we looked at why Jesus is God, the second part of the creed and why it matters. This was, after all, the main reason that this council of Nicaea formulated the creed in 325 AD and then 381 and Constantinople, they finished it. And it was to discuss the question of the real meaning and significance of Jesus Christ. You see, while the church had long believed that Jesus was both God and man, divine and eternal, it was now being called into question. What we saw last week, though, is that Scripture reveals Jesus to be fully God. He is fully God, uncreated, begotten of the Father. And because of God's love for us, Jesus enters into the world to rescue us from our sin. And it's only because he's fully God, nothing less, that he's able to live the life required to be the perfect sacrifice for you and me, a life we couldn't live. In week three, we celebrated Christmas and how Jesus is fully God and also fully human. We talked about the doctrine of the incarnation, uh, incarnation, how God becomes flesh and he enters into our world and how this reveals that he's with us, he's for us, he understands us and all that we go through. But more than that, we can actually become like him. And then last week, we made it to Good Friday and to the crucifixion of Jesus. And we looked at the doctrine of the atonement, where we see that God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we have all sinned, each and every one of us in this room has sinned, and we all fall short of God's holiness, Christ has died for us. He pays the debt we couldn't pay for sin in order that we can be at one with him, atoned for. This week, though, we arrive at that most glorious of days, Easter Day, perhaps my favorite day in the church calendar. And it's the day that changes everything, isn't it? It's the day when Jesus is raised from the dead. And what we'll see today is that the fundamental question of whether or not Christianity is true, ultimately it goes back to the resurrection. It all goes back there. And it's not too much to say that no resurrection, no Christianity. No resurrection, no Christianity. So let's look at our section of the creed for today. I think it'll be up on the screen. It's right there if you want to follow along. And also the scriptures that we've chosen to accompany it that you can find on the insert inside your announcement sheet. And the first question I want to ask is, how can we know that the resurrection's true? You know, you may believe that, but what if someone was to ask you and to say, well, yeah, but how do you know it's true? What would you say to them? Ultimately, you know, it does take a step of faith to believe in something so profound and so miraculous, doesn't it? And yet, as with the rest of the creed, it is not a step of blind faith. let Let me say that again. It is not a step of blind faith to believe in the resurrection. Now there are good reasons to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1980, Lee Strobel's award-winning investigative reporting earned him a promotion to legal editor at the Chicago Tribune. But things weren't going nearly as well at home. His marriage was on the rocks, and then to make things worse, his wife became a Christian. Well, his wife Leslie's newfound faith in Christ compelled Lee, who was an ardent atheist, to utilize his journalistic and legal training to try and disprove the claim of Christianity, pitting his resolute atheism against her growing faith. After a year of investigation, though, very thorough investigation, he ended up becoming a Christian himself on November 8, 1981. Strobel wrote about this journey to faith in the best-selling book, The Case for Christ, and I recommend it. It's definitely worth a read if you have questions about the historical veracity of the Christian faith. And Strobel said this of his conversion, In short, I didn't become a Christian because God promised I would have been or I would have a happier life than I had as an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Indeed, following him would inevitably bring divine demotions in the eyes of the world. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. That meant following him was the most rational and logical step I could possibly take. So what is this compelling evidence that led Strobel to his faith and many others? You know, we don't have time to look at all of it, but I want to go through some of the key points. The first one is this. The first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women. It's number one. You know, all the Gospels note that the first individuals to discover the tomb empty were women. In our Gospel reading today, Luke notes that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Women were not held in high esteem at that time in the culture. A woman's testimony, in fact, was not admissible in a court of law. If someone were to invent a story then, the last people that they would have chosen to place as the first witnesses would have been women, unless it were otherwise true. Second point, the transformation of the early disciples. The 12 disciples clearly believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Anyone can see that as you read these stories. And as a result, these men who had fled on Good Friday just three days earlier— are suddenly emboldened to the point where they are willing to die for their faith in Jesus. Think about that. Not only this, but James, the brother of Jesus, was changed from a skeptic to a believer because of the resurrection. James, along with his brothers, didn't believe in Jesus during Jesus' early ministry. We see that in John chapter 7. However, Jesus appeared to James and James became a leader in the early Jerusalem church. The Apostle Paul, of course, is another example of one who was completely transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. Paul had been a persecutor of the church, yet after witnessing the resurrection of Jesus, Paul became a proclaimer for the church, perhaps one of the greatest proclaimers for the church to ever live. As Lee Strobel puts it, Paul himself says that he was converted to a follower of Jesus because he had had personally encountered the resurrected Jesus. So we have Jesus' resurrection attested by friend and foe alike, which is very significant. Number three, we have the documentary evidence for the resurrection. You know, a historian seeks to find the primary and secondary sources. they, uh, They seek to find them and gather them for an event to determine the event's truth. Concerning the primary sources, the resurrection... Has Matthew's account. It also has John's account and Paul's account in 1 Corinthians 15, including the additional references by James and Jude. Then there are also a number of secondary sources for the resurrection. We have the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Mark, Clement of Rome, and to a lesser degree, Ignatius and Irenaeus. Then the fourth point is the missing motive. J. Warner Wallace has noted in his lectures and books that when a conspiracy is formed, three motivating factors are behind such a move. Power, greed, and or lust. Power, greed, and or lust. Well, the disciples would hold no power behind claiming the resurrection as history. They were running around while often being threatened by the Jewish and Roman authorities. As far as greed, they taught that one shouldn't desire earthly possessions, but spiritual ones. And then lust wasn't a factor either. They taught celibacy before marriage and marital fidelity after marriage. In fact, N.T. Wright notes in his classic book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, that the disciples had no theological motivation behind claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead as they were anticipating a military hero and a final resurrection at the end of time. So what motivating factors existed for these disciples to invent such a story? None whatsoever. The only reason the disciples taught the resurrection of Jesus was because Jesus' resurrection had occurred. And then finally, point five, we have the multiple post-resurrection eyewitnesses. There are multiple eyewitness accounts or testimonies concerning the resurrection of Jesus. Several people had seen Jesus alive over a period of 40 days. The eyewitnesses include Mary Magdalene, the women of the tomb accompanying Mary, the Roman guards, the 11 disciples, the two men on the road to Emmaus, and over 500 disciples, as well as James and Paul. But, you know, couldn't they just have been hallucinating, as some people have suggested? Well, Strobel investigated that one, and to quote him, he says, I went to a psychologist friend and said if 500 people claimed to see Jesus after he died, it must have been a hallucination. The psychologist said, well, hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have seen the same hallucination, that is a bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. <laughs> Friends, there is plenty of proof for the resurrection of Jesus. And we could spend a lot more time looking at it. But I don't want to go there. I want to ask, so what if it didn't happen? So what if the resurrection didn't happen? Why does the resurrection even matter today? Can't we just follow Jesus even if we didn't believe that he rise bodily from the grave? Well, firstly, without Jesus' resurrection, there is no victory over death, friends. The thing the world fears the most, there is no victory over that. In John chapter 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In Isaiah 25 verse 8, we just heard uh, David read, it's prophesied that he, the Messiah, will swallow up death forever. And in the Apostle Paul's first letters to the Corinthians, chapter 15, we read, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Lord our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, what a Napoleon and the Queen of Sheba and Abraham Lincoln all have in common? They're all dead, right? <laughs> they're all dead, yeah? They may have nothing else in common, but they're all dead. The great equalizer in this life is that you and I and all of us are destined to die. But because of Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection, death has been defeated. In Romans 10, we read, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And in Romans 6, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die, uh, we will never die again. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a kid, my mom at Easter would walk into town and she'd get us each a gift. She'd get us this large, hollow chocolate Easter egg from the local chocolatier. And they'd write a message on the egg if you asked them to. So she would have her Easter messages ready and written down because she wasn't sure they'd be able to spell them. So she'd write down, he is risen would be on one egg perhaps. Or "Alleluia, Alleluia," Or Christus victor. Now, I'm thinking she probably got some pretty funny looks as she went into the chocolatier and asked for these messages because England was increasingly secular and people didn't really celebrate Easter that much anymore. But she knew why we were celebrating. And she wanted us to know why we were celebrating too. Yes, you know, we're going to get this great gift of this chocolate egg. But there was a much greater gift on offer that day because of Jesus defeating death by his resurrection 2,000 years prior. The free gift of eternal life. See, because of God's great love for us, we need no longer fear death. We can have eternal life if we put our trust in Jesus and choose to follow him. And the bodily resurrection of Jesus assures us of this. Secondly, without Jesus' resurrection, there is no guarantee of a person's present forgiveness and justification. Again, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, we read, "'If Christ has not been raised,' Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, I've said this many times before, friends, but without Christ's resurrection, all of this, right? The stuff of church, of Sunday mornings and so on, it is a waste of time. And yes, you may as well sleep in or go to brunch or do whatever else you really want to be doing on Sunday mornings, right? No, no, without that, we wouldn't be here and there would be no point in us being here. Without the resurrection, There's no way that we can be healed of the greatest sickness that mankind has ever known, which is sin. You see, since Adam and Eve walked in the garden and chose to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, we have all been infected with the sin disease. And there is no man-made cure for this disease. Even with all the scientific progress we've made, even with the supposed civilization of many parts of the world, sin still exists sexual abuse scandals continue to rear their ugly head. Slavery or sex trafficking is still an issue within the United States of America, of all places. And just last night, eight people were shot at a holiday gathering in Virginia, continuing the epidemic of gun violence within our country. But we also don't have to look far on our own communities, do we? Our neighborhoods, our home, or if we're honest, even within our own hearts see that sin is like a cancer that cannot be cured. The good news, though, is that because of Jesus' resurrection, we can have full assurance of forgiveness and justification before God right here and right now, today. God's love for us opens up the way for us to be made whole. And the resurrection guarantees that for all those who repent and believe in Jesus, they're forgiven and justified right now. Thirdly and finally, Jesus' resurrection is the basis of resurrection life in Christ for the believer here and now. You see, without Jesus' resurrection, he's not here with us by his Holy Spirit. We're like a beautiful car, perhaps, that you own that has no gas inside of it. It's worthless, right? There's no resurrection power within us by which to lead the Christian life to which we're called to, to be disciples who make disciples, following him, being formed by him, and fulfilling his mission here on earth. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he prays that the Christians in Ephesus might know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And just before he died, Jesus said, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper is the Holy Spirit. He's the one who empowers Christians to live resurrection lives here on this earth. You see, salvation is not just some insurance policy that we have, but rather it's a way of life that we live here and now. And without the resurrection power within us by God's Holy Spirit, there's no hope that we can live lives of any value for God's kingdom. So friends, we need a real bodily resurrection of Christ to know that death's been defeated, to know that we can be assured of our forgiveness and justification today and to be able to live the lives that we're all called to lead right here, right now. To quote Lee Strobel one final time, the resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' divine identity and his inspired teaching. It's the proof of his triumph over sin and death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. It's the basis of Christian hope. It's the miracle of all miracles. Do you share in that Christian hope? If not, don't wait any longer, friends. Turn to Jesus, repent, and choose to follow him. And if you already do share in that hope, are you sharing that hope with others? Christians have the greatest news in all of the world. That there is always hope, even in the face of things like a broken marriage or the worst of financial problems or living with some form of abuse in our past or perhaps dealing with a terminal disease or the loss of a loved one or kids or grandkids who are struggling. Or if we're dealing with addictions or pain from past decisions or facing depression or loneliness or simply feeling lost in the world Yes, the resurrection of Jesus says that these things, they don't get the last word. They don't. They need not defeat us or our neighbors. God's power, as revealed on the first Easter weekend, can transform the greatest of suffering into the greatest of joys. So will you receive him now? And then will you take this good news to the world? As the prophet Isaiah says, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, bring your resurrection power into our lives where there is apathy where there is hurt, where there is brokenness, where there is sickness, where there are addictions, where there are just pain from the past, Lord, would you bring your healing power into our lives? Would you transform us into disciples who are ready to follow you, come what may, ready to follow you, and would you bring healing where there is brokenness and wholeness, Lord Jesus? Come, Jesus, we need you. We need that same resurrection power that raised you from the dead 2,000 years ago. We need it within us that we might live for you and live for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.